So I heard a sermon once in which the preacher described a statue of Jesus that she had seen, and it stuck in her memory. She was on a trip through Turkey, and if you know anything about Turkey, it's full of old ruin cathedrals, cathedrals on every corner, and this one stuck in her mind. She's on this tour of ruined cathedrals, and she stood there staring at all these cathedrals, and she saw the shards of ancient walls, just pieces of them left. It doesn't look like a church at all anymore, shooting up out of lush green fields. She made her way as the sheep around her are grazing in the nave where parishioners at some time ago had gathered. She said she looked around and she could, she could see the walls shooting up around her and she saw the gorgeous scenery, but she couldn't help but wonder, what did this look like a thousand years ago when these walls were intact and they created a world all of their own? And then she looked up east. I have no idea if this is east. <laughs> it is now. Then she looked up east, east the direction of the altar, and behind where the altar would have been was this shard of a wall still standing, and right in the middle of that wall, halfway up in a niche, was this ancient statue of Jesus, and it just captured her. He was still there, still there. The years had not been good to Jesus. Part of his face was missing, like this whole side was gone. One eye was gone. Parts of limbs had been worn away in the weather over the years. But there he still stood, still standing there in his classic pentocrator stand, still looking over this church, which lay in ruins. And that image of Jesus just stuck with her standing there, still blessing the world through a broken church. That image is all I could think of when I read Corinthians 11 and Matthew 22 this week. First, Paul is writing to this small church in Corinth about what God is up to in and through them. And he addresses a way in which they're broken. The church, just three years old, We'll be celebrating our fourth birthday in March, or uh, we just celebrated our first birthday since relaunching, so somewhere around our age. The church, just three years old, is already broken, particularly when it comes to one of their core worship practices. Apparently, the Corinthian church is divided, and they've been squabbling and infighting, and there's all these fractions and cliques and groups, and apparently one of those cliques, one of those cliques, is a wealthy clique. And these wealthy people would get together before the actual service began to have a feast. And they would make sure that they invited their friends to the feast. And their friends, of course, were the folks who could afford a place at the table and who would bring something with them to the feast. And so they would get together and have this huge banquet and because they're good Christians, and because somebody prayed over the meal, and because there were zero pastors and ordained people at this time, a mere prayer over the meal made it the Lord's Supper. 
And then later on, everyone else would file in. And basically, the church became this place where everybody thinks and looks and talks and shops like me. Not me, like them. Paul then addresses this brokenness directly with his favorite metaphor in Corinthians, the body of Christ. He says, examine the body. If everybody's not present, it's not the Lord's Supper. Examine the body. Except somewhere along the way, we have made this scripture, about the time of the Enlightenment, we began to make this scripture all about the individual. I wonder if you've ever heard this verse taught like this, that Paul is really telling you to examine your own body, your own sinfulness, before coming to the table. And if you come to the table with any sin, you stand in danger of doing what he calls drinking and eating to your demise, to your damnation. If you come to the table without guarding the temple, your body, have you ever heard this? You will be drinking and eating to your demise. This actually has nothing to do with what Paul is talking about here at all. <laughs> this is a grand reversal of what happened in the Enlightenment when the individual became the most important thing. Paul's talking about the community. And he says, examine the body. Who's missing? If everybody's not here, it's not fully worship. They had this kind of country club mentality, and Paul's trying to drag them back into being the entire body of Christ. Now, I would say that that's not really what we experience today, um, although there are still churches that have country club mentalities. I, would, I don't actually think Kingstown does. Uh, anybody who has come in recently might say probably not. I don't think Kingstown does. Um, but I think that the biggest danger to the body of Christ today is members refusing to participate in what God's up to. Refusing to be a consistent part of worship. Refusing to show up. Refusing to be present. Every week, Christ takes his place and seeks to bless the world. And every single week, there are members missing like like they've just been worn off, worn down, eroded away with time, barely recognizable as the body. Examine the body before participating, before coming to the table. Examine the body who's missing, who's not here. Fundamentally, I think this shift which again came pretty much in the Enlightenment, fundamentally this shift is that worship became about us. At some point along the way, worship became about me as an individual, and it's something I like to participate in, I choose to participate in, because I get something out of it. 
And so I come to worship so that I can reconnect to God. I go to worship so that I can get my batteries charged for the week. I go to worship because I want my kids to be raised in a certain ethic. My family, my faith, my life, it's about me. Here's the good news for the week. Worship ain't about you. (laughs) It's the one time every week that we in our narcissistic culture can actually get outside of ourselves and devote ourselves fully to something outside of ourselves. Worship's not about you. And so the hymns we sing... As much as Brett and I spend hours trying to figure out what you might like, (laughs) we're not trying to stir up a feeling in you. We're trying to speak a faithful message to God. And the prayers that we pray, as much as Hilaire, when she leads in us in prayers, makes me want to cry sometimes, we're not going to tug on your heartstrings here. That's not the point. We're trying to encourage you to offer your lives as a prayer before God. This is one of the reasons why I'm so happy that our worship team, our leadership up here, whoever is up here, is not elevated. You go to some churches, right? There's platforms and stages and chancels and very large. It doesn't matter if it's a contemporary church or or a like high church. Things are elevated a lot of the time. I love that we're not elevated because it moves us out of this notion that this is a performance and that you are the audience. In worship, there is an audience of one. And we're the actors. You all are the actors and actresses and the schmucks up here leading occasionally. (laughs) We're, we're, we're the people in the wings helping you change your costume and, like, pushing you out on stage when it's your time and giving you the cues. But you're not, you're not the audience. We're all joining into this grand performance for an audience of one. And this is the shift that has to happen, particularly in our culture, for us to continue to build a Christian community in Kingstown that is gathering people into full Not part, not when it's convenient, not when there's nothing else to do on that day, but full communion with God. (laughs) And to do that, it takes all of us. If parts are missing, worship is lacking. And you know this. I know you know this. Because this is why you love Christmas in a barn. And this is why you love Easter sunrise at Knolls. And this is why you like big community events like Serve with St. Nick. And this is why we had a whole text thread going of how awesome Sunday service was after the Eucharist. Because you know why you like that. What is that feeling that you get when you like it, when when you show up to a place that's full? It's because it feels alive and it feels right and it feels like the body is together. Examine the body. Paul says examine the body, but Jesus this morning takes a whole different tone. The kingdom of heaven is like a king, Jesus says, who throws a wedding banquet for his son. And for those who don't show up, who don't get dressed up for the ball, 
they're going to be thrown into the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You better be glad you're the ones that showed up. Woo! Us here today, we're in the clear. Woo! One commentator that I read this week said, this is the list of characters in this parable. The king is really God putting on the banquet. Jesus is the king's son, the person for whom the banquet's being thrown. The invited guests to the party are those who don't participate in the life of the church. And the servants who bring in the good and bad are the Christians who are stopping at nothing to share the gospel, showing up to the banquet with many a friend in tow, because it's that important. Okay, though, if we follow this line of thinking, then the wedding robes that the partygoers wear at the end of the parable must represent the righteousness of those who show up to the banquet, who enter the kingdom of God. The parable seems to say that these are the clothes that we wear to God's party, and those who choose not to put on the costume, those who don't come dressed for the party, who don't participate, well, they're just not righteous. Thank God we are. This parable is obviously a warning against being a party pooper, Every party has a pooper, and apparently it's not y'all, right? Y'all are here. I see you in your robes. You look good. You're dressed for the party. Except to whom is Jesus directing this story? For whom is Jesus making this a lesson? Jesus' audience are not the folks who didn't show up. Jesus' audience is not the murderers who mistreated and killed the slaves even. Jesus' audience isn't even the people who were brought to the party in the end. Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and chief priests. In other words, Jesus is talking to you all in your pretty robes. The people who show up. The people for whom a sermon on presence on showing up seems lost. Jesus is condemning the partiers for being complicit in the party pooping. Jesus is condemning the Christians who show up to the feast for being complicit in the other's absence. You see, one of the things we think is that You know, whether or not I come to worship really only affects me. Whether or not I share my story with a friend really only affects my salvation, right? Sure, I I may have a better week. I may feel a little bit better about myself, but I, I don't really need it this week. I can just sort of move in and out of this life of full communion based on my needs, But what if your brother or sister needs to see you in worship? What if the fullness of worship depends on your faithfulness in answering God's call? 
What if your brother or sister needs to hear you speak out against injustice? What if your brother and sister needs to hear you tell your story? What if you show up here but remain silent and unaffected and absent out there? We enact worship in here for this audience of one so that we might be God's presence, God's storytellers, God's advocates who show up out there. You see, absence doesn't happen without the complicity of the crowd, without the tacit and complicit acceptance of individuality and disconnection and my life and my isolation and my garage and my car and my job and my distance and my family and my apartness. It is the apathy of bystanders that will bring the party to a screaming halt. And we're the bystanders. And we so easily become apathetic. Over the last month, we have heard report after report after report from 25-plus women describing sexual assault and harassment and rape at the hands of one Hollywood executive. In the last year, we have seen arguably the most powerful man in politics, the most powerful man on television, the most powerful man in Hollywood, all accused, all complicit in multiple, multiple reports of sexual harassment and assault. Liberal, conservative, East Coast, West Coast, North, South, it really does not matter. This problem is everywhere. The party guest in the white robe says, where do these monsters come from? They're not at my table. But the servant who shows up with friends of all kinds asks, what am I doing in my life? in my home, in my language, in my workplace, in my apathy, in my neglecting to show up to the conversation? Am I a living limb of the body of Christ or have I been worn down, not recognizable, not present? Am I still standing in the midst of a broken world? You see, prison doors don't lock without a staple of guards to turn the keys. And bodies aren't rounded up and deported without taxpayer dollars. And carbon emissions don't rise without cars and planes full of passengers. And a powerful movie producer can't assault a young actress without assistants and schedulers who look the other way, without actors who defend his integrity in public, without moviegoers continuing to see his films. And churches can't remain empty. And worship can't remain lackluster and non-existence. And full communion can't hurt without apathetic people who are present. There's an ancient Hebrew story to round this up, and the band can go ahead and come up. There's an ancient Hebrew story about what's happening when the people of God get back together. And I love this story. Here's how the rabbis tell this story. The rabbis say that God decided to come to earth 
and God stuffed God's self into a jar, a gigantic jar. But you know, God is entirely too big for a jar. And so God not being able to fit in that jar, there's this divine explosion that happens, and God is fractured all over creation. And the rabbis would tell us that heaven happens when God gets put back together. So that's the trajectory that is all of creation. God putting everything, including God's self, God's body, back together. And what happens when people of God get back together? It's a foretaste of the kingdom. And so worship for the people of God is that weekly giving in to what God's up to and allowing ourselves to be put back together with God so that all the world might be put back together.